so, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you weren't with us on Wednesday night, Ash Wednesday, this uh, little YMCA gym was quite a special place to begin uh, the Lenten season. Uh, If you weren't with us, I I will offer a bit of a recap as we begin this Lenten journey together. The word Lent, kind of a strange word. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard the term used other than just in very religious uh, circles. It comes from an old English term uh, where we get the idea of lengthening of time, the lengthening of days during spring. We know this is true Uh, that the days begin to get longer and longer as we move towards summer. Uh, It's also uh, often a a word that was used to denote springtime. But in the Christian tradition, it's a way of entering into a very intentional time, 40 days this Lenten season, that mirrors the 40 days of Christ that he goes into the wilderness to begin his earthly ministry. Even if you're not a biblical scholar, you probably know the number 40 is a pretty big deal. It's all over the scripture, Old and New Testament. This time is important, 40. Uh, 40 is a significant number. We know that uh, when I look back, the the way in which it's been helpful to think about it is this 40-day period, regardless of the time in which the person or people found themselves in or exactly what God intended to do in their lives, it was a way of intentionally preparing for something new. We want to be ready for something new to break in, and so we're going to enter into a 40-day or sometimes 40-year period of preparation. Moses fasted and prayed for 40 days prior to receiving the law, the Torah. Uh, Elijah walked for 40 days and fasted in his preparation to meet with God. Jonah, how how many days did he give Nineveh? 40 days to prepare and repent in order to turn to the Lord. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Some actually pinpoint this 40 years as a way of looking at it. That's the time it takes to to break in a new generation. Uh, I think it's kind of cool just on a really human level that it's 40 weeks approximately that we spend preparing for new life, newborns to enter into our world. It's a time of preparing for something new, And if you didn't catch it in the reading, Jesus is led by God, the Holy Spirit, into this place of wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. God's desire, he wasn't forced there, but his desire was to invite the God-man Jesus Christ into this awkward in-between space. So 40 is significant, but then wilderness is very significant this desert experience. Um, Just for fun, by show of hands, how many of you know of the TV series Alone? Raise your hand. Okay, that's that's why I didn't open with this because not many of you have heard of it. Um, This idea of entering into a wilderness experience. Various cultures throughout time and history have valued this. There's a current TV show that's become somewhat popular. That, that refers to this invitation of, we, it's amazing how this desert experience, this wilderness experience will begin to reveal, how, how am I really doing? When I get alone and all the noise of this world is turned down, how, how is it actually with my soul? How am I doing in my relationships? I find it so profound 
I might have watched a few seasons of this show. How many times people within a few weeks begin to speak of unreconciled relationships. They quiet down. They begin to ponder their, their parents, their children, their loved ones. This wilderness space has a way of inviting us to, to get real about how we're really doing below the surface. And I want you to know that this period of 40 days and this place of wilderness is a, is a time and is a place that God continues to invite anyone who wants to follow after him to enter into this space. God has a way of leading his children into wilderness desert spaces. And what happens in that space is your appetites are revealed. What you worship is revealed. What you love is revealed. You'll be hungry in the wilderness. And, and so you'll have to look at the reality of what do I really trust in? Two parts as we look at this passage in Luke 4. First of all, why did Jesus have to go to the wilderness? And then secondly, why should you? Why did Jesus have to go to the wilderness? And then secondly, why, why should you and why should I join him in that? You've heard it said that uh, probably if you grew up around any kind of Christian message, you probably have heard it said that, you know, Jesus died the death that you and I should have died. And this emphasis on uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is, is really important in Christian uh, worship and belief. But I want to pinpoint and highlight the fact that Jesus lived the life that you and I ought to have lived. That, it, that in everyday life, the reason that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was such a perfect sacrifice is that he conquered sin and temptation in ordinary everyday life on every level. Three questions under this first part. Why did he go to the desert, the wilderness? What does he accomplish there and how does he accomplish it? Be brief on this and then we'll get to why you should go to the desert with him. The first one, why is Jesus led into the desert by the Spirit, it says. It says he's led there and he is tempted in every way. Really great parallel. Hold up in one hand, the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And there was a purpose for that wilderness experience, that they might be my people. That was the goal. And God had told them, this is throughout the scripture, both old and new, that the purpose of that wilderness experience was to test them and to see what was in their hearts, that they might become his people. This parallels now, hold up the people of God in the old covenant, wandering around and just falling flat on their face time after time after time. They never live up to the, to the standard, not once. They continue to fall flat on their face. Now hold up next to that, the perfect, the perfect son of God, child of God, Jesus Christ, who enters into this wilderness experience and and, and in perfect obedience begins to conquer sin and temptation. This 40-day desert experience parallels the 40 years of Israel wandering into the desert. Um, just a brief comment. Sin and temptation, one of the reasons that, that sin and temptation is so alluring is it's often, it's, it's appealing to something that we believe might be good for us. The threefold pattern that's in the Garden of Eden 
the threefold pattern that, that really overwhelmed the people of Israel as they wandered the desert. It says in Genesis 3 this, so when she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, it's good for food, it's delighting to the eyes, it's appealing to, to my desire to be wise. This is the way sin and temptation works in every age, not just in the garden. And so we are challenged by this on a very human level and we are not able to overcome in our own strength and power the weight of those three challenges. The account in Luke is told not simply because we need to know that we have a God who can sympathize with our weakness. You've heard this said before that Jesus was tempted in every way, this is in Hebrews, yet was without sin. And because he experienced the full weight of that temptation, he can sympathize with you and me. That's true. But I want you to know this passage isn't just about that. It's not just, oh, so he can sympathize. It's that he begins the defeat over sin and temptation through his perfect obedience. Why does he go into the desert? He's led there by the Spirit to begin the defeat over sin and evil. See, the answer to our sin, I, I briefly commented on this and I want to, on Wednesday and I want to share it this morning, that we tend to think of this Lenten season as a time where God's kind of wagging his finger at us, telling us that we're not really living up to the standard. And if we'll just try really hard by Easter Sunday, we could be a little more presentable, maybe wear a suit or something. And we tend to, in Christian circles, have this idea that if I can just try harder, then maybe I could earn approval. At a very deep level, we tend to dumb it down. That is not the purpose of the season. The purpose of this season is actually to place every bit of your hope and joy on the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And we begin Lent 1 in this season of 40 days as we journey towards the empty tomb, fixing our eyes not on our own effort, but on Jesus's perfect obedience. The answer to our sin and brokenness and struggle is not more effort, but being empowered by the grace that's found in Jesus's victory here. It was so moving to me um, several weeks ago when we looked at the passage where Peter, it begins to dawn on Peter really what a mess he is. And he's in the boat with Jesus. And he actually says to Jesus, Jesus, depart from me, I'm, I'm a sinful person. And, and I made the case then, and I'll make the case now as we begin this Lenten journey, that, that anybody who's tried to follow Christ for any period of time will eventually hit a wall and will come to the place where you go, man, I, my life is just such a mess. I don't know. Jesus, I think you might want to move on to somebody else. And what Jesus says to Peter in that moment is what he says to us. And the reason he can say it is because of what he accomplishes here in the wilderness. He says to Peter, there's nothing to fear. When you stare your own brokenness and frailty, your own sin, the mess that we make of our lives apart from God, when you stare that in the mirror, it is easy to say, Jesus, you have to get away from me. But there he is smiling at Peter saying, you've got to get near me. Come closer to me. Put all your weight, not on your performance, but on, on my perfect obedience. Why did he go to the desert? Why did he go to the wilderness? Because he begins to conquer sin and temptation for the whole world. And it's on full display in Luke 4. I've already really answered part of the second question is what does he show us in the desert? Why does he go? He's led there. 
He's led there by the Spirit. And what is he doing? He's preparing for his earthly ministry. We know that. I said that Lent, these 40 days often in Scripture is a time of preparing for something new. What was new at the end of this 40 days is Jesus is inaugurating his ministry on earth in a powerful way. So he withdraws, he begins to model this defeat over sin and temptation, and he's led there, and he proves that he is the sinless one. When we look at the challenges in our world, uh, especially over the last couple of weeks, if we are ever to fight the good fight of faith, then we have to understand that you and I have an actual enemy. Um, in, in ages past, it, it's one thing to comment on this when there's not like the brink of like maybe world war breaking out, but to, to comment on this in the moment where you're watching, you're watching it on your own screens is powerful. So when we think about our enemy, um, what does Jesus do in the desert under this question? He begins to defeat sin and temptation, but he is battling an actual adversary. He's battling the evil one. And and in the modern day, this is really easy to be like, okay, well, the guy in the robe thinks that's real, but I don't. If you think that all that is behind the evil that you're watching on TV is somebody's like unfortunate, traumatized childhood, or that all that was behind slavery was just a few, a few, you know, economic economically driven or racially driven people, if you don't have a category for evil, you're naive. One extreme in our modern kind of naturalistic way of looking at this is just to dismiss evil altogether. But what Jesus shows us here is that sin and temptation in the evil one is a real battle that has to be engaged in. The other extreme that I've seen in some Christian subcultures is to not dismiss the enemy as being like irrelevant or not real, but actually giving them too much credit as if like he's the only problem. Uh, What happens is that Satan finds comrades in us humans. If we're not aware of the battle, one way to not be aware is we dismiss the presence of evil altogether. And the other one is we act like it has nothing to do with what we find pleasing to the eye what we find good for food, what we find to be the desire of our souls, that the enemy knows our natures and the way in which we can be so easily deceived to think that everyday ordinary life is not somehow a battleground for your soul. Jesus shows us that there is a battle to be fought and he begins this cosmic battle. He's tempted in every way and we know that he wins. Observe what he undergoes. We're going to look at him just briefly in a moment when I ask you, why should you go to the desert with Jesus? Each of one of those temptations is so incredibly deceiving. He's playing on the very nature of the God-man. Give up your humanity in order to put your divinity on display. He's playing on his kingship. We're reading a book right now as a leadership council. We just began reading it together by a guy named Henry Nouwen called In the Name of Jesus. And it's a way of looking at Christian leadership in the modern day. And if you don't know anything about Nouwen, Nouwen left a a Yale, Harvard um, tenured career as a professor 
to go and serve uh, mentally handicapped people in a long-term care facility. And he talks about how difficult this transition was for him because he went from being really respected and admired for what he knew and for how he could teach to being in a setting where all of his credentials were utterly irrelevant to everyone he was called to love and serve. In fact, on one occasion, he offered one of the guests at the facility meet. And, you know, Nouwen was like an ecumenical leader. And one of the, the other members at the table said, don't give him meat. He's a Presbyterian. <laughs> Eating meat and being a Presbyterian has nothing to do, if you don't know, nothing to do with each other. It was a way of Nouwen realizing, oh man, I, I'm in a different space I feel utterly irrelevant in this space to embody the love of Christ to these people. And he writes about it in this little book we're reading about and trying to learn from each other on. He says this, check this quote out. The leaders of the future will be those who dare to claim their irrelevance in the contemporary world as a divine vocation that allows them to enter into a deep solidarity with the anguish underlying all the glitter of success and to bring the light of Jesus there. We're so bent on being relevant. Uh, one writer, Mark Buchanan, once said that the church of the modern day is a lot like Esther. She wants to look like everyone else, only better. There is a battle that's raging for your worship and your adoration for your soul. And it's even so deceiving that you could mistake Christian service to be something it's not meant to be. You've got to be aware that there's a battle and that your own need to be relevant in the world might be part of that battle. I love what Nouwen says. I think it's really a prophetic statement to say that leaders, ministers, pastors, churches of the future are going to be those who embrace this awkward space. How does Jesus defeat temptation? We have much to say about this in the weeks and months to come. We talk about this often as an Anglican parish. Our whole time in worship is bathed with the word of God, but it's kind of obvious. He defeats the challenges of the enemy by relying wholeheartedly upon what God says, who God says he is, what God says about reality. What, what do you lean on to define ultimate reality? I'm amazed at the number of Christians who have been totally tossed around by the waves of pop culture. I mean, like, you're, you're anybody else here that, that does uh, group fitness or exercise fitness or Pelotons or any of these at home, it's amazing how many fitness classes are proclaiming the message, you're awesome, and you just need to embrace your awesomeness and get rid of all the people who don't realize how awesome you are. This kind of self-help, the power of positive thinking. Who do you lean on to describe reality for you? It's amazing to me. I'm, I'm kind of poking fun at like, a, you know, fitness classes, but, but like, what are you reading? Who are you listening to? Who's narrating reality for you? What happens when you join Jesus Christ in this wilderness experience is you begin to realize you begin to realize the source of, of who's defining reality for you. And what Christ shows us is 
The battle is so strong and so cosmic and so powerful that even he, the God-man, has to rely solely upon the word of God to counter Satan's attack. Each temptation was met with Jesus. By the way, did you notice Satan uses scripture against Jesus? When you talk about twisted, evil, an enemy that wants to hurl insults at you, And the way to conquer that sin and temptation, Jesus models it for us through total dependence upon the word of God. God, what do you say about life? What do you say about reality? Who do you say that I am and that we are as your people? Okay, so what question? I got a few, just a couple minutes left. So what? Why does Jesus go to the wilderness? We've tried to look at that for a moment. And then I want to say, here's why you should too. I don't really understand why God has created a world in which it works this way, but this is the pattern. It's the pattern all throughout scripture that he invites his children to enter into this wilderness space with him. That just as Jesus Christ was led by the spirit into this time, this period of 40, and into this place, the wilderness, the pattern for all who want to follow after him is to join him in that experience. And here we have a season around 40 days of Lent for you to do just that. And what happens as you enter into this experience is that you are are inviting something new to break in. You're preparing for something new to break in. As we look at each of those temptations, I really will be brief. As we look at each of those temptations of Jesus, what we see is that the Father and the Spirit are giving gifts that can only be found in the wilderness that there's water to discover that can only be drunk in the wilderness. Just in case you fell asleep, I'm gonna say it again. There's water that you can only find in the wilderness. And so if you don't join him, if you don't trust him enough to enter into this awkward desert space that seems like it's going to be hard, you won't discover the joy of these gifts. This is why I love to say Lent is not a time of utter sadness and darkness. It's a way of saying, I I want to walk with you so that joy can break into my life. Each temptation has a gift attached to it. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus responds, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We'll see Jesus at the beginning of his Lenten journey and at the end of his Lenten journey, quoting scripture, even on the cross. What is he, how is he narrating reality? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Psalms. Uh, We have a way of inviting three classic spiritual disciplines. One of them is fasting, Uh, fasting from actual food. I won't go into much detail. I talked a little bit about it on Ash Wednesday, but the purpose of abstaining from, of fasting from certain foods or drinks is not because we just think you ought to be miserable for 40 days. You're fasting from in order to feast on someone and something else. And this rearrangement of what you find satisfying is really important. So I abstain from certain things, not just because I think that's, you know, that's kind of the moral thing to do. No, no, I'm actually wanting to begin to feast on a different reality. 
Augustine, wonderful quote that captures the heart of Lent, once said, we must empty ourselves of that which fills us so that we may be filled with, with that of which we are empty. Let me say it again. We must empty ourselves of that which fills us so that we may be filled with that of which we are empty. The gift of God's word, God's personal word to you in this moment of struggle, him speaking his truth and reality over you. The second gift is the gift of learning to trust in his provision. Uh, The parallel of the old covenant people and then Jesus in this moment. You know, they only got enough bread for each day. You won't get tomorrow's bread when you're in the wilderness. This space that you're invited to join Jesus in, this period of 40 days of testing is a way of you and I learning to trust in God's provision instead of saying, it's up to me to scrap and claw and get that which is mine, to strive after everything I need in this life. Who is your provider? Who are you leaning on? That's revealed in this wilderness time and space. The second temptation, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's commanded. He'll he'll command his angels concerning you. Jesus says it's written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Briefly, the third gift. This time of fasting, this time of learning to pray, when we're challenged um, with the kingdoms of this world put in front of us. Uh, Let me just say, you you might have heard this before. I find this really helpful that the word that's used in Scripture for lust is really a word that that describes and defines that which you are over-desiring. It's a desire that's gone off the rails. And so things that were meant to be for your flourishing and my flourishing good things, become God things. I begin to over-desire them. And in the wilderness, as we look at, one of the ways that that if you have any self-awareness, if you don't ask those who love you, is there anything you see in my life that I'm over-desiring, that I'm leaning on in a way that's maybe out out of whack? It's not really leading to my flourishing. It's actually leading to my harm. This is a space where if you'll do that, the gift that he wants to provide is the gift of real worship, true worship. The gift of his word, the gift in the second one of trust in him. The third one is the gift of real worship, real satisfaction. Why does Jesus go to the wilderness? He defeats sin and temptation and he invites us to be in on it. Why should you go? Well, you're not better than than he is. Neither am I. It was something he did. I think it's something you and I ought to do. And this is an ancient path. If you'll use this guide on your way out, there's a a little table at the back. There's a little three, it's just front and back, really simple, a way of thinking through three really simple classic disciplines during this season of praying and fasting and almsgiving. I really want to encourage you to use this and, and fill it out. Take the time to quiet yourself down and to enter into this amazing season with us. Now, as we come to the table, though, as we come to the table this this morning together, would you rejoice that that your, 
your king and savior, your big brother Jesus has conquered sin and temptation, that he was tempted in every way just as we are, but was, was without sin. And because of that perfect obedience, you and I now come to this place where we, where we can receive exactly what we need. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you've called us not to perform, but to receive. And so with hands open, we come to your table and we receive your perfect sacrifice and offering on our behalf. Jesus, we give you thanks as we gather around your table. Amen.